Good evening, everyone, and welcome back to the New York Historical Society. We have a great season ahead of us, and I am really thrilled to see so many very familiar faces in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. For those of you who don't already know me, I'm Louise Mirror. I am the very lucky person who gets to be called president of the New York Historical Society. I want to uh, make sure that those of you who have not yet seen the Hirschfeld Century, which is on view to my right on this same floor, get to see it before it closes in less than a month. It's a wonderful exhibition. And uh, of course, we have Picasso's Le Tricorne on view in our Dexter Hall on our second floor. And I know you'll want to reacquaint yourselves with that wonderful painting as well. Uh, feel free to pick up a brochure on your way out um, for listings of all our programs and exhibitions that will be opening over the course of this fall. Tonight's program, The Court and the World, American Law and the New Global Realities, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, I would like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his great support, which has enabled us to bring so many fine historians, authors, and Supreme Court justices to the New York Historical Society. I would also like to recognize and thank the wonderful uh, really quite spectacular chair of our Board of Trustees, Pam Schaffler, who is with us this evening, and to thank Pam for all the great work that she does on behalf of this splendid institution. I'd like to recognize as well fellow board members, Helen Appel, Susan Danilo, the chair of our Chairman's Council, uh, who are with us this evening as well. Tonight's program will last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We will ask audience members to line up to my left and to my right in the aisles behind standing microphones. Uh, we ask that you do that so that everyone in the auditorium can hear your question, and also those who listen to our recorded podcasts can hear you. There will be no formal book signing this evening, uh, but following the program, there are pre-signed copies of our speakers' books available for sale in our museum store. Tonight, we are so very delighted to welcome Associate Justice U.S. Supreme Court Stephen Breyer, who was appointed in 1994 by President Bill Clinton. Prior to his appointment, his prolific career included teaching positions at Harvard Law School and Kennedy School of Government, as well as an appointment to the United States Court of Appeals for the First Circuit by President Carter in 1980, where he eventually became chief judge. Justice Breyer has written books and articles about administrative law, economic regulation, and the Constitution. His most recent book, which was just released today, is The Court and the World, American Law and the New Global Realities. Before we begin, I would ask, as always, that you please turn off your cell phones or anything else that makes noise, and also that you please refrain from photography this evening. And now, ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Associate Justice Stephen Breyer. Thank you very much. It's, it's nice to be back in New York at the New York Historical Society. I find New York history not only interesting, but terribly confusing. <laughs> uh, I was just reading something about Governor Morris, whom I thought was governor of New York, but of course he wasn't. It was just his name, Governor Morris, for two centuries has misled people since the signing of the Declaration of Independence. He went to France. He was a Francophile. He spoke very good French and a really good politician. And apparently, uh, someone realizing this asked him in the middle of the revolution uh, to give Louis XVI some advice. And he did. And the letter, I read the letter. Fabulous. It says, Seer. It's a good way to start if you're writing to the king. Uh, uh, he said, uh, People will advise you to put in your cabinet uh, reactionaries. Or possibly, these radicals from the assembly, my advice is the hardest advice for any human being to take. The hardest. What I advise you to do is nothing. <laughs> do nothing. Now, 
if you take my advice, I've looked, and the assignat, which is the currency, they're printing up by the bushel load. There will be a terrible inflation. People will be absolutely furious. They'll look around to blame someone. And if you've done nothing, they can't blame you. Everyone else will get blamed. You will still be king. If only he had taken that advice, he would still be king. And no one takes the advice doing nothing. And instead of doing nothing, I have written this book. <laughs> well, what is it about? <laughs> it is, in a sense, an effort to give a report from the front, the front being the Supreme Court, which people don't normally think of as the front, but nonetheless, a report about what? A report about how, at least in my mind, the composition of the cases that we're deciding, the nature of the problems that is confronting us, is shifting and has, since I've been there for quite a long time, 20 years, in the direction of reflecting what everyone's life reflects, that we live in a world uh, that is, let's use the most cliche possible, shrinking, uh, or uh, interdependent, or uh, globalized, or whatever other word you want that is really abstract and sounds somewhat profound and probably true, and we don't quite know what it means. And this book is designed to make it concrete in the case of one of our institutions, the Supreme Court of the United States. <clears throat> Another way to put it, if we're onto French literature, is uh, the Charter House of Parma, the hero, Fabrice Del Dongo, is a soldier. And he's out there at Waterloo. And uh, guns are going off and horses running around and smoke and total chaos. And he says to himself, something really important is happening here. Uh, I have no idea whatsoever what it is. And that, I think, is what's happening with uh, globalization, uh, interdependence, uh, shrinking world, etc. Now, I can't explain of all of it, but what I can do is I can show you in a mere 294 well-chosen pages uh, what it means for our institution, which is something interesting to me. And you don't have to be a lawyer or a judge to be interested because it affects your life. And it's the challenges that it poses for us. But let me be concrete, because what I thought I would do for the next uh, 20 or 30 minutes is to take one example, and, and there are several, of an area where things have changed. And I want to show you one of them, which is of more general interest, uh, which does affect all of us and involves a major question the question of what happens to civil rights in times of security need. And I want to show you how the law and the approaches have shifted and tell you where we're ending up right now, and then to ask you to think about the global information challenge that it poses for our court. Well, now you might just accept everything I've said so far so you don't have to stay. But nonetheless, nonetheless, Let's call this section, historically, Goodbye Cicero, uh, What Now? I'm just making these titles up. Uh, but uh, it is, it's Goodbye Cicero. Uh, we're sort of not too sorry to see you go. Uh, Cicero, why Cicero? Because Cicero said, and his saying is famous in law, he said, when the gun, well, the way I translated it was, when the cannons roar, the laws fall silent. And I, I said that several times before someone said, uh, you don't seem terribly uh, well, uh, uh, you don't understand much history. Uh, you see, the Romans didn't have cannons. <laughs> All right, that's a point. And uh, nonetheless, you see the point. Uh, when the... Uh, War, arms, that was the actual word, uh, the laws fall silent. And what happened to that? What happened to that slogan, to that view? It played a pretty important role in American life. And it's understandable. Think of the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln, he had a tough, tough problem. 
And what did the court do in the Civil War? Well, what did he do? He put an awful lot of people in jail. The Secretary of State, the Secretary of War, Seward, 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 called in the British ambassador one day and said, um, you see this bell? If I push this bell once, I can have any person I want in New York put in prison. And if I push it twice, I can have any person I want in Ohio put in prison. Tell me, does the Queen of England have such power? And they did put tens of thousands into prison. And the Supreme Court did nothing, very little. It tried at the beginning, a famous case, but I won't go into it, not enough time, and it didn't get anywhere. And then in a case at the end of the war, they intervened once again. Uh, the Attorney General, there was a man arrested in Indiana, uh, the Attorney General uh, said, courts stay out of it. And the way he put it, as he said, um, no, he quoted Cicero. He said, uh, the government says that the peace, the Constitution's provisions protecting basic human rights are peace provisions. And like all other conventional and legislative laws and enactments are silent amidst arms and when the safety of the people becomes the supreme law. That is Lincoln's attorney general. Here is Roosevelt's Attorney General, Francis Biddle. The Constitution has not greatly bothered any wartime president. We can understand it. We can understand it. And indeed, the court did intervene in the Civil War and stopped the man being put into prison without really much authority. Uh, the law didn't. I mean, the court had the authority to stop it, but not the other way around, uh, they intervened after the war was over. You see? Again, we can understand it. But the funny thing about law is that opinions which we can understand have a kind of rationale that then has consequences that we find in later periods might not be quite so understandable. If you look back in some reform, I'd say World War I, you find the same thing. The court was not a great defender of civil liberties during World War I. And uh, lots of people, people were put in jail for what they wrote, for arguing against conscription. There were all kinds of statutes passed that made it very difficult to speak against the war, that made it very difficult to take power from the armed forces to Description, engage in the activity that they wanted. Again, people understood it. It was wartime. But then let's go a bit further and we'll get to a, a famous case in law called Curtis Wright, and that was in the 1930s. In the 1930s, uh, there was a war uh, in the Chaco, which is near Bolivia, I think. And Bolivia and Paraguay were fighting over the Chaco. Each was trying to get the oil that was in the Chaco. In fact, there was no oil in the Chaco, but they did not know that at the time. <laughs> well, uh, there were people in America uh, who were helping them. The Curtis Wright Company, for example, was flying down with uh, lots of airplanes filled with rifles and other things. And Roosevelt Franklin Roosevelt did not want that. He had something called the good neighbor policy, and he got Congress to pass a statute, and the statute basically said that the president can make it a crime and put anyone in prison for sending weapons to a country that he thinks it is inadvisable to send weapons to. Hmm. That's a pretty broad law. <laughs> and uh, the question was, and I've paraphrased it a little unfairly, but not much, uh, could he do that just by himself, make this a crime? Well, he tried to. He issued a proclamation, said, don't send anything to the Chaco or Bolivia. Who was doing it? Curtis Wright. Curtis Wright was indicted on a, as for a criminal offense, and it went to the Supreme Court. Now the Supreme Court said, well, it was Sutherland 
Sutherland was one of the four horsemen. The four horsemen were those who held against Roosevelt almost uniformly, particularly if he was exercising broad delegated authority. Uh, he was doing that all over the place domestically. Uh, new agencies that no one had ever heard of. And the court was saying, no, 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 no. And right out there in front were the four horsemen. I guess they called them the four horsemen because they were in front. They ran more fast. Whatever the reason, they would say no. Sutherland wrote an opinion that said for a unanimous court, yes, in this case. And how could he reconcile this tremendously broad power? Not necessarily so surprising today, but then absolutely surprising that the president could shape a crime out of whole cloth, push somebody in jail, put them in jail for violating this crime that he had created under a statute that was extraordinarily broad and gave him authority to do all sorts of things. And how could these people, the four, who were so much against presidential power, have allowed that to happen? Answer, foreign affairs, war, Cicero. Now, so far, I haven't upset you very much. But let's see where this is going. Let's go to the middle of World War II. And what happened right at the beginning of World War II and stretched to almost the end of World War II was under a statute that was very broad and a presidential proclamation and a military order by General Witt in the Presidio in San Francisco, 70,000 Americans of Japanese origin were taken from the West Coast, their homes, and were put into camps in the middle of the country. And not to put too fine a point upon it, they were imprisoned. These camps had barbed wire around it. Some of their children you've probably seen on the documentaries on television who were fighting for America uh, in Italy were allowed to come back and visit the president, their, their, their parents who were behind barbed wire uh, in the middle of the United States. Indeed, in one of these programs, I heard interviewed uh, uh, a captain then, and he said, well, one of the Nisai who, uh, battalion had said, but how are my parents, why are they behind bars when I'm fighting for, for, for my country? And the captain, who's actually, I sound like a rather nice guy, he said, you know, he says, I haven't a clue. He said, this is the army. He said, what you, and, and, uh, but that's what happened, and it went to the Supreme Court in 1944. And in 1944, the Supreme Court upheld it. Now, I promise by 1944, in the case of Korematsu, it was Fred Korematsu, who was a great guy, I met him once actually, because uh, uh, the man who defended him, Ernest Bezig, was uh, head of civil liberties in San Francisco, the ACLU. Uh, the ACLU, by the way, wouldn't let him, them, him use the name ACLU for his brief. He had to defend him on his own, uh, which he did. He, he was also a poker-playing friend of my father. And his daughter, who happened to live near us in Cambridge, uh, invited him over for his 80th birthday, and she invited me. And I met him. He was a great guy. He was very feisty. And his parents had not wanted him to bring the case. But he did. And he was certain he was going to win. And so was Bezik. And, and so were many others. They got there? No. They lost. They lost. And uh, uh, the people who voted for the government, people like Black and Douglas, Frankfurter, people who later uh, were on the right side of Brown versus Board of Education, civil libertarians. How did that happen? Because I would say I haven't exaggerated in thinking that most people who look into it think that's one of the worst cases the Supreme Court has ever decided. How? My guess, my guess in reading the papers of people and <clears throat> they were thinking, all right, maybe, maybe, maybe Korematsu is right here. Maybe the army is wrong, but there'll be other cases. Somebody has to run this war. Somebody has to run it, and it has to be Roosevelt, or it has to be us. And we can't run it, and therefore it has to be Roosevelt. Okay? I think that was the theory. And there we have Cicero. And I would say that's the high water mark. But the country generally, and those interested, were not particularly proud of that case. It was really an unfortunate situation. And... Uh, the wind begin to, began to blow in the other direction. And when I want to point to the wind changing, I go to Korea. Because during Korea, 
Some will have read, or maybe even remember, that President Truman then seized the steel mills. He seized the steel mills because he wanted to avert a strike. He wanted to avert a strike because we were fighting in Korea. And fighting in Korea in the presence of a steel fright, uh, strike could have led to uh, real problems and people killed. And uh, he said the thing to do is to seize the mills. And he, uh, he was advised strongly by his virtually his entire cabinet that, that that's what he should do, because it was terribly important to avert the strike. But he did seize the mills, and the uh, government argued in court, because they uh, look what Mr. Baldridge argued for the government. Court, this is Judge Pine in the lower court. So you contend the executive has unlimited power in time of emergency. Mr. Baldridge, he has the power to take such action as is necessary to meet the emergency. The court, if the emergency is great, it is unlimited, is it? Mr. Baldridge, I suppose if you carry it to its logical conclusion, that is true. But I do want to point out there are two limitations on the executive power. One is the ballot box and the other is impeachment. Hmm. Judge Pine did not accept that argument. It went to the Supreme Court very quickly, and a decision of, I think it was, uh, I think it was like six to three, I think, the court said that President Truman could not seize the mills. You see, they'd drawn a line. They said the president isn't totally free, even during a war, to take whatever action he wants. That came as a surprise to the president. It might be, if you look at the notes, they're interesting, because Justice Jackson wrote, he wrote, uh, when he read this transcript that I've just read you, he says, the boys who want to give all the power to the president have taken control of the Justice Department again. And he th said, that's a very bad idea, and we should stop it, uh, doing as little damage as possible. So he wrote an opinion, uh, which says, it's a famous opinion, but for other reasons, but it says, no, the president cannot cannot do this, cannot seize the steel mills. Uh, that goes too far. And you say, let's go back and look at these cases. When does it go too far and when does it not? And as to that, he had, didn't have that much authority, but he said, if you look to the case law, and if you look to what the founders really intended, you will discover that that exercise of trying to work out what they really intended in this area is rather like Pharaoh trying to interpret, rather like Joseph trying to interpret the dreams of Pharaoh. Not clear. And maybe they were reacting against Roosevelt. Maybe they were just focused on Truman. But now the direction is changing. Now let us jump way ahead and go to the cases of Guantanamo. In Guantanamo, we had four cases 10 years ago. Each of those four involved a detainee. They involved the detainee trying to get into court. They involved the government, and in one instance, a statute of Congress saying they couldn't go to court. And in each of those instances, the court decided in favor of the detainee. Now, if we look back at those cases and pick out one line, which in my mind captures the essence of them and the essence of where we are at this moment, the line would be that that Sandra O'Connor wrote when she said, looking at steel seizure and quoting that quite a lot, that the law today is that the Constitution does not write a blank check in favor of the president, not even in time of war or national security emergency. Good line. I joined it. The only problem with the line is this. Someone might ask, very well, uh, if the Constitution does not write a blank check in favor of the president, what kind of check does it write? Mm -hmm. And you want to find out? Go read the opinion ten times. I promise you, Pharaoh's dreams had nothing on that opinion. <laughs> Why? Because the answer, truthfully, is we don't know. And it's dangerous to go too far. And why have I told you this long story for purposes of this book? because I want you to see where we are. It's quite possible national emergencies and security problems will exist for quite a long time. 
And now we know that the Constitution does not write a blank check, and we know that what kind of check it does write can come up in many different ways. And the problem, of course, for us, being a little self-centered about it, how do we find out? How do we find out what the realities of the security problem are? How do we know, in the face of a real security problem that may not be a conventional war, that may last a long time, whether or not a presidential order or a congressional statute that infringes civil liberties is justified or is not justified. Now, all I want to have done is to have said enough so that you can see it's reasonable to think that the answer is not the president can do nothing that he couldn't do in peacetime. Wartime is different. Security problems are serious. The Constitution does give to the president the authority to manage the security of the country, along with the Congress, not to the Supreme Court of the United States. But the Constitution does give to the Supreme Court the authority to look over what's happening to civil liberties. And so when those two things are conflicting, knowledge is important. And the lawyers help. They ask the government, why are you doing this? And there better be a good answer. Or they ask the government, why don't you do it this way? And there better be a good answer. But we're in the position of evaluating. Evaluating in today's world where all over the place there are different kinds of security problems, in my opinion, means knowing something about it. And you will have the task as a citizen, or Congress, you through Congress, or you through a procedure that involves lawyers, of trying to inform the judges who every day are seated at their desk. And you say, my God, why should they do this? Well, who should? Do we want to go back to Korematsu? I would not. I don't want to go back to Korematsu and Cicero. On the other hand, if we don't want to go back to Korematsu and Cicero, then what? All right, that's where we are. Uncomfortable position. Problem number one. And what I'm saying here is I'll give you lots of examples of what other countries have done. I'd say it's helpful sometimes to look and see what other countries have done, whether we adopt it or not. I'll give you uh, some of the information that we might be able to get or might not be able to get and point out that there is no clear procedure as to how we get it or not. And, of course, we can. The government will file a brief, and it will tell us exactly what the situation is and all the facts. But the government sometimes, you know, they'd like to win the case, and I don't think you should decide a case just because the government says something. They might be wrong. Could happen. Now, you see the problem? So here we are today in the midst of a problem like that, in the face of a big area, we, how we got there, I've explained it, but we're there, uh, called uh, security and civil liberties. Now, there are plenty of other problems which raise other kinds of challenges. You can go into the area of commercial law. After all, there we've had cases involving antitrust law and copyright law and securities law. I love the case uh, that we had of... Uh, uh, the student from Thailand, Mr. Kurtzang, uh, who uh, was studying at Cornell and discovered that his textbooks, identical textbooks, were half the price in Thailand. So he wrote home to his parents and said, in equivalent language, dear mom and pop, send some books. <laughs> and they sent the books and he sold them. He was doing pretty well. <laughs> the publisher then sued him for copyright infringement. Now, if he bought them at Barnes & Noble here in the United States and they'd been made in the United States, no problem. You can do what you want when you buy a book from a retail store. But he brought them abroad and the statute's pretty obscure exactly about what it means and whether he could do it or not. And we had briefs in that case from British companies, from the British government, from European governments, from Asian governments, from lawyers all over the place saying their governments were wrong. We had dozens and dozens and dozens of briefs. Why? Because copyright today is not simply a question of books, nor even of music. Copyright today is in every automobile where they have uh, copyrighted software. It's in every product, or not every, but most, go into a store, and there's a label, isn't there? 
and that label will be copyrighted, and it's in design. We were told in some of the briefs that this case, whether we go one way or the other, affects $3 trillion, trillion, trillion dollars worth of commerce. No wonder we had all those briefs. And that isn't such an exception. See the kind of cases we're getting. And to answer that case properly, we can't just go and do some kind of mesmerism about the words in those statutes. We have to know something about how copyright works abroad, whether publishing companies try to divide markets, whether it should make a difference if a person goes into a, uh, uh, an auto dealer in San Francisco and buys a Ford that was made in America or buys a, a Toyota that was made in Japan. Of course we have to know things like that, or we will not properly interpret the American statute. With antitrust, cases where we have to know how the European antitrust authorities work so our laws can mesh and work in harmony, same with securities regulations. Or, if you want human rights, take the case of Dolly Phil Artiga, a wonderful case, a, a, a heart-tugging case. But Dolly Phil Artiga came to New York City right here in the 70s from Paraguay. And she found here another man from Paraguay, and that other man she found had tortured to death in Paraguay her brother. She sued him. She found a statute which had been written in the 1790s, which seemed to give her the right to recover damages for a violation of the law of nations. Probably it was enacted to help victims of pirates. Well, who are today's pirates? Well, she won in New York, and she left, went back to Paraguay. I don't know if she ever collected damages, but, but she was happy. And she said, I came to America to look that torturer in the eye, and I left with so much more. And as a result of her case, lots of others have been brought. But now these raise pretty difficult issues. Who are today's pirates? But more than that, what about apartheid? Pretty terrible. But the South African government files a brief in an appropriate case that says, we're dealing with apartheid victims, and we are dealing with apartheid perpetrators, and we do it through Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and we don't want American judges in New York or any other part of America interfering with our process. Well, how do you interpret uh, the statute uh, with problems like that, problems of non-interference, or problems of uniformity? If we interpret our statute one way, I guess other countries can do the same. And do we want Henry Kissinger indicted in Belgium, as they once tried to? I don't know. I, that, I don't answer that. But the, the <laughs> but the, but the, 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 the point is the point. You see the point. These are not easy matters. We have a statute that is trying to universalize some kinds of human rights. And who is in the middle of it? Of course, it's a statute. So it's the judges. And they have to know how to do it. And they have to know something about what goes on elsewhere in the world in these kinds of problems with other countries trying to give redress of some kind to human rights victims, who, when, where, etc., before they can get appropriate answers. Or take a simple thing, domestic relations. Domestic relations, husbands, wives, children. Now, there are people in the court system who know a little bit about how to deal with this, and they are not in the federal courts. They are in the state courts. They're called domestic relations judges. And one of them, a good friend of mine, and my daughter Chloe is here, with a father friend of hers, uh, in school told me, Eddie Ginsburg, he said, you know, he says, I tell every couple that's fighting in front of me, she says, I just hope that you can resolve your differences in a way satisfactory to you, because if you can't, I have to impose a solution, and anything I impose is going to be worse than anything you agree upon. Point. He has experience. Federal judges don't. So why is it we've had three major cases involving the abduction of a child by one member of the couple? And does the child have to be returned? Why? Because it's a subject of treaties. We interpret treaties. 
And we're interpreting treaties where there are cases where they're brought the child to the United States, and you will find groups who are very much against child abduction urging one interpretation. And other groups who are very, very much, that's their reason for being, uh, fighting spousal abuse. And they're on the other side of the interpretation. And there we are, federal judges trying to interpret. I'm not complaining. That is the job. But it's important to the people in job in, <coughs> who, are, who live under these things, uh, statutes, treaties, etc., that we get the answer right. And maybe the treaty has to be changed. Why is it being done by treaty rather than the domestic relations judges who are so well prepared for exactly this kind of problem? I mean, someone from Ohio takes a child and goes to Kentucky. I mean, that happens a lot. They know how to deal with it. Why are we? Because it's in a treaty. Why is it in a treaty? The reason's obvious, because more and more people are getting married across national boundaries. That's the simple reason. And as more and more of that happens, you will find more and more of the subject of the domestic relations in the treaty interpreted by federal judges, not state judges. And how they are to get the right answer? A challenge. A challenge. Or look at treaties in general. I was surprised by this. How many organizations do you think there are internationally created by treaty that have administrators, administrative bodies, which are busy writing rules, which rules as a matter of fact bind people or companies in more than one country. See? Anyone who thinks it's more than 100, raise your hand. Anyone who thinks it's more than 500? Anyone think it's more than 1,000? More than 2,000? Yeah, actually, 2,000 is about right. <laughs> apparently, apparently. And this country belongs to at least uh, several hundred. I mean, there's everything under the sun, ranging from the International Trade Organization <clears throat> to the International Olive Oil Council <laughs> to the uh, uh, Blue Fin Whale Commission uh, to the uh, co commission that is uh, dealing with the, uh, uh, greenhouse gases, and they make rules. And those rules, if you're... Uh, uh, you own an airplane company, you better follow the rules of the International Civil Aviation Authority or you can't fly. And what's the status of those rules? And when do Americans have to follow them? And what can Congress do about it? I mean, to exaggerate the matter, imagine Congress couldn't delegate any authority to such bodies. Because all legislative authority has to stay at home. That sounds like something Justice Sutherland might have thought. Well, we couldn't participate in dealing with the problems of the world. But suppose Congress is totally free to do anything. What happens to Article I that gives Congress the power to legislate if they delegate all of that away? These are somewhat familiar problems because they came up during the New Deal within, with, uh, with agencies. But their answers are not necessarily so familiar. And how we get fair procedures into these is not necessarily so familiar. Another set of problems that gradually is sort of peeking its head out of uh, various guises and cases that we're having in the court. All right, I've said enough, I think, to make my point. My point is, it's all over the place, and it is different. And of course, for years and years, since the beginning, Congress has, the court has referred to foreign judges and foreign cases and so forth. That's all true. But look, I want to show you what's happening now in areas where looking abroad is necessary and really isn't terribly controversial among the judges. And I want you to see that because I want you not to accept a political argument that is going on right now, which is that our court should not refer to decisions made in foreign courts. Now, all I want to show, I'm not arguing the merits of that political argument, I'm simply saying it's rather beside the point. Because I've wanted you to see, by now you see, you see what we're talking about. And as far as that argument is concerned, fine. 
I think I can say a thousand times, but look, the court's always done it. What's the matter? I got into an interesting discussion with one of the congressmen at a seminar uh, who really believed that strongly. And I, they, they, people who think things quite differently than you think are often highly intelligent and articulated very, very well. <laughs> and and uh, well, he did. And he said, I said, I guess you're aimed at me. He said, yeah. And, and uh, I, I said, well, look, what's wrong with, uh, we refer to a lot of things. What's wrong with, with ref looking at a foreign case, even in, uh, after all, there are many instances we might look and see what they say. They won't bind us. Why not look at it, read it? It might tell us something. Maybe it just tells us it's wrong, but we learn something. He said, fine, read it. Just don't cite it in your opinion. <laughs> so I said, but look, if we cite foreign courts in our opinion, some of them are just trying to get started in Eastern Europe and so forth. That gives them a little more prestige, to be honest, and they can go to their legislatures, and they have constitutions too, and it's important to support an independent judiciary that helps civil rights and so forth. And he said, okay, write them a letter. Just don't refer to it in your, you say. <laughs> so I said, well, what is moving him? What is moving him is he is worried. He's worried about something. And what he's worried about is if we do too much foreign looking around, we will water down our own American values. And I say, I've written these 274 pages in part to say to him, I hope that if you read this, and you see what's actually going on in our court, you will come to the same conclusion that I've come to, which is the best way we have to preserve our American values, is to participate where legally appropriate, through the law, but participate, be aware of, understand, be knowledgeable about, be in a position to evaluate what is going on beyond our shores. Because if we do not participate, it's gonna go on anyway, and if we do not participate, we will not have the opportunity to add what we know best. Now, we don't know it perfectly at all, but we do know something about preserving human liberty, democracy, and widespread trade. And that, I think, is my motive, probably, at, at bottom. Say, who are we? Because that, that stems back in, I guess, my experience as a court, uh, as a judge in, in my court. I mean, you see everybody under the sun in front of me and the others in that court, every race, every religion, every point of view, I've said this many times. But if you keep that in mind and go back into our history, another thought strikes, and that thought is, who are we? We are not the descendants of King Arthur. Uh, we are not the distant relatives of Charlemagne. That is not what this country is about. It is in part about what I think the founders wrote, what they thought they were doing when they wrote this document, the Constitution. They thought they were creating an experiment. Read the words of Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. It's an experiment. There is no other place in the world where people are going at that time to try out democracy, some protection of individual liberty, a rule of law, and wide areas for trade. And if you don't believe it, read what Lincoln said. I can't say it better than Lincoln. But that Gettysburg Address we had to memorize and that my wife Joanna spent some time only a year ago trying to learn and teach to our grandchildren. Uh, uh, they got prizes. Uh, the, 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 uh, uh, but, but what does he say in that first line? He says, you know, uh, four score and seven years ago. Why four score and seven years ago? Because he wants to refer back to the Declaration of Independence, not the Constitution. He said, four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this nation, uh, upon this continent, a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Today we are engaged in a great, great war to see if, if what? Hmm? If that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure, that's the point. Can long endure. That's the experiment. Even then, he's thinking, the experiment. It's called the experiment continues. Because at that time, there aren't many places in the world that have it. And what I want to say far, far less eloquently, but I want to say that experiment continues right now, that rule of law. And I want to urge people to think about uh, how do we 
contribute what we have to contribute, which is that thing which holds us together, one among many, but that thing of dedication to that experiment. And that is what I'd call to participate in these problems that are facing our court right now. So to make that interdependence concrete, to get people to understand the nature of the challenges, and to perhaps urge them to participate with us in trying to help us uh, solve some of the problems that the world, not the philosophy of, independent ju of different judges, what the world is throwing up on our doorstep. That's why I wrote it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Justice Breyer, for coming back. I believe it's your third visit here with us, and we hope to have you again. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we're opening up um, the Q&A, the audience Q&A. We invite you to come to the standing mics in either aisle and ask Justice Breyer a question. We hope you'll ask one question per person. We want to give as many people a chance to ask their questions. And we do ask for a question uh, rather than a lecture. <laughs> okay. So go ahead. Thank you. Oh, I'm dying to ask like five, but I'll just ask one. Um, is the country ready to get rid of the death penalty? <laughs> I wrote a dissenting opinion in which I said uh, that I thought uh, there were good reasons uh, for reconsidering uh, the, the issue, for considering the issue that you're bringing up. Uh, sometimes it's the wrong person. There's strong evidence that it's very arbitrary. Uh, it's an incredibly long time between anyone who's sentenced to death in an actual execution, uh, 18 years on average, Mm -hmm. And there are fewer and fewer. Maybe up to date this year, there have been about 20, which is a big drop, and they're all concentrated in a handful of counties. And uh, so I put, said, putting those together, I, I think that that uh, suggests a, a serious constitutional problem. And Ruth Ginsburg agreed. And that doesn't mean, well, the others did not join, so we don't. And uh, so we, we, we'll have to see. Okay, next. I'm very ignorant in this area. Um, I'm just wondering, um, you were talking about the uh, giving the president and the government unlimited power in wartime, and uh, is the Supreme Court dealing with this issue of electronic surveillance that is very broadly, uh, and the, the whole the thing that Snowden brought I'm, up? I'm trying to think if there's a case in front of us now. There was a case involving some people who were challenging one aspect of it uh, 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 two or three years ago. And that split us five to four and uh, as to whether those individuals, the particular individuals, had standing, which is could they show that they were hurt by the surveillance of which they were complaining, that there really was surveillance on them. I thought they had showed it, uh, but uh, five... Uh, thought they hadn't. And uh, so there we are. Uh, and wh whether there are other cases directly in front of us, there might be, I'm not sure. I hope so. Thank you. Next. Thanks. Hey, Justice Breyer. My name is Bob Wilson. Uh, Justice Breyer, as you know, and, and you cite a number of uh, examples of conventional use of foreign law uh, shared by both left and right. So, for example, copyright law, choice of law, uh, international law, you, you refer to the Alien Tort Statute of 1789, and so on and so forth. So the, so the real question is, uh, let's say in a First or Fourth or Eighth Amendment case, should a foreign law decision be dispositive in determining a case before the Supreme Court? And if you say no, uh, does that mean the next time you have, let's say, an exclusionary rule case before you, you're going to say, well, the entire world disagrees with us, and therefore maybe we should reconsider the exclusionary rule? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, the the uh, cases that I've seen, the people you know who, who say don't uh, look at these cases, they've been two, really, two areas. One is death penalty, which I think is special because it says cruel and unusual punishment. So what I did actually in the dissent uh, on the death penalty is I put on a couple of pages the other countries, and I said, well, they don't do this. But China does, and uh, they have a lot of people in China. And I said, make of that what you wish. 
I didn't use it as a driving force in the opinion because I, I thought that's a side issue to what I'm trying to do. And uh, the other one was the uh, gay rights case in uh, Lawrence. And uh, I think those are rather special, frankly, because most people will say in cases like that, it doesn't bind us. It doesn't bind us. And we're looking uh, because we might find something useful. And that's in the area where it's politically controversial. Right, but should it be dispositive? I, I've not said it binds us in an area like that. You know, the, the, the gay rights area. It was just used as a counter-argument to some other argument in Bowers versus Hardwick. And, and I haven't said it binds us in the death penalty area. Indeed, uh, I don't think so. Uh, what, what I was, see, the word there is unusual. Uh, uh, death penalty is, unco is unconstitutional. It, the Constitution forbids cruel and unusual punishment. You take the word unusual and say, did they mean unusual, the founders, in respect to the whole world or just in respect to the United States? And we're back to Pharaoh. You know, it doesn't say. Well, you're saying it should inform us, and I think that's great, but should, should a foreign case ever be dispositive was my question. Is it dispositive? I haven't seen an instance where it's been dispositive. Have you? Can you think of one? I don't know all the instances. No, I mean, should it be Usually, usually when I talk about it, which I have done, with Justice Scalia, with me, we both have, and, and uh, not the areas you're thinking of. I said, no, not binding. Then I'll say, well, you know, why not read it? We might learn something. Okay, we're uh, ready. And, and then you get back into the circle I've been talking about. Thank you. Hi, Joseph. Jack McKenzie. How are you? <laughs> you asked, who are we? I think I know who you are, but I think the general public would have a better idea of who you are if they could see how you conduct yourselves in the courtroom. I'm speaking of cameras. Some people are... Jack, is there a question? Yeah, the question okay. is whether we should have cameras in the courtroom. And that's a perfectly good question. And the, the, uh, the fact is, uh, in my mind anyway, there are good arguments on both sides of that. The, the, if they could, if there were cameras in the courtroom in many, many cases and people would look at it, what they would see, in my opinion, is nine judges trying to do their job in very difficult cases, and I think that would be instructive and helpful. So the arguments the other way are uh, that, uh, first of all, uh, the oral argument, which is what you're talking about, is really only 5% of what the basis for decision is. Most of our stuff is in writing, and uh, the oral argument is a very small part, and when people look at television, they tend to see people who are in front of them, and people identify with people. But we are deciding an opinion for 314 million people who aren't there. And that may be hard to understand. And then, if I'm really quite direct about it, I think no one knows what would happen exactly. And, and it's a uh, conservative with a small C group of people in that respect. Um, and uh, it's a uh, jump into the unknown. And, uh, uh, maybe people would be appointed who were good on television, which might be better. I don't know. Uh, but the, the, uh, uh, it's, it's a conservative institution. I don't think you have to worry, because I think eventually uh, the world will be made up. This country will be made up of people who are younger than me. It is. And more and more will be in these jobs, and they just won't see the difference between television and printed press. And then you, the, you, your side of it, as suggested by the question, will carry the day. That's my prediction. But at the moment, it's not my prediction for the immediate future. I don't know. We haven't had a vote on it. Okay, next question. Thank you. Justice Breyer, Ellen Kalka. In this time of unconventional war, which seems to be our future as more and more as time goes on, and maybe we'll be in for a 50-year or 100-year war or simultaneous war, wars, do you think that means that the court will continue to exercise great restraint in its balancing of civil liberties against the security of the country? Well, there, there, there is a problem that is exactly the problem I'm trying to pose, and I don't have the answer to it. Uh, we met with some English judges uh, uh, not very long ago, and in, in, in Britain what they're doing is they're giving some authority uh, to the courts uh, to, under certain circumstances, uh, limit, say, the, the um, uh, cell phones or computers, or maybe wear bracelets of people whom they have certain evidence against, and they appoint a lawyer for that person, and the lawyer can't talk to the client, he can talk to the client, but he can't communicate completely with the client. 
in, in uh, Israel. Uh, the, uh, and they've had problems of terrorism, clearly. And uh, what they do, uh, as it was described to me, in some instances, where the military comes in and says, we've got to hold this man, and we cannot let him talk to anybody. He'll tell his lawyer, go tell my mother I'm okay, and that means blow up the restaurant. You see? So what they've worked out is if something like that is going on, the military can go in and talk to the judge, explain it. If the judge accepts it, then maybe the military can hold him incommunicado for a period of time. But they have to come back two days later and say why they still have to hold him. And what happens is it becomes harder and harder to hold him the more time passes and the more quickly you have to come in. You see the idea? I'm not advocating either of those. The most I can, I can say is if your assumption is correct, there has to be a way of our finding out and evaluating more than just the precedent from prior cases. Norman Arnoff, uh, and my question is this. Having just had a petition for a writ of certiorari denied on an issue under uh, the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and a party's uh, right to a day in court um, that I thought met all the criteria uh, for the grant of the petition, uh, it seems to me, uh, isn't there uh, a major uh, force in terms of determining which uh, cases come before the court is the resources uh, of the court and the capacity of the court uh, to take in the cases and no. decide them? No, that I can say definitely no. Uh, we could take more cases than we take. Everyone thinks so. Uh, maybe if you got up towards 100 a year, it would be a problem, but it's not a problem at the moment. And so we're really looking for cases to take. Now, if this will make you feel better, which it won't, um, <laughs> you, what you ought to remember is what Taft, who was Chief Justice after being president, said was the purpose of our court, which we take to heart very much. It is not to give a person another appeal. It is not to correct an error. The individual, your client, has in all likelihood had a trial and in all likelihood at least one appeal. And some possibilities had two or three already. So continuous correction is not what we see as the function. What did Taft say? He said that the primary function of our court is to smooth out differences in federal law where different judges in different places have come to different conclusions as to how a particular single set of words in a statute or constitution should be interpreted or applied. It's to get rid of the conflicts. Now, what I console myself with, which will not console you, is it's almost impossible for us to make a mistake by turning down a case. Because if it is a problem, that really required our attention, the issue will be back. Now, if it never comes back, the country didn't need us. <laughs> now, by the way, if it comes back, it will be in another case. And if we have made a mistake, we'll find out in another case, which is no consolation to you whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, next question, please. Sam, right there. Sam Silverstein, Justice Breyer. Before I ask you my question, I just want to thank you for being the exemplary person you are. Could, could you speak up a little, please? <clears throat> yes. Thank you. Uh, the question is about economics. Uh, as we move more into, uh, as we live in a global world, as your, your book indicates, uh, when will... Uh, decisions about economic questions uh, in the United States take, uh, take uh, guidance from the impact of those economic decisions on other economies elsewhere and other people elsewhere. Well, that usually isn't up to us. We don't get directly, very rarely do we do get directly an economic question. We might in an antitrust case. Uh, we might in an economic regulatory case. Uh, we might in certain administrative law cases. 
But that kind of question is a very interesting question, but it's unlikely to be one that will be directly presented to our court. I see. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, that was our last question. I just want to let everyone know that we won't have a formal book signing tonight, but Justice Breyer graciously signed 100 books. They're waiting for you in our museum store, and you're, you're allowed to buy more than one. <laughs> Justice Breyer, thank you.